it was really sort of lab-based work, sat in a lab all day, and I realised at that point, staring down a microscope for the rest of my life was not going to be the career choice for me. Hello everyone, and welcome to this first episode of our new series, the Voctech podcast, Learning Continued, which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. Across this series, you'll be hearing from learning and development specialists, further education pioneers and learners, entrepreneurs working in vocational learning, ministries of education reforming adult ed, and investors interested in the future of work and new modes of supporting lifelong learning. If you're a keen listener to the EdTech podcast, fear not. We will continue to tackle areas such as the user experience of learning, strategic partnerships and technology, efficacy, ethics and impact, and investment and policy. But in these episodes, we'll broaden out slightly to also include our wider family members, active in corporate training, future of work and vocational education. Our standard EdTech podcast episodes will continue to go out on the feed too. To any new listeners, welcome and hurrah, you found us. Thanks for joining. Feel free to dig around past episodes or just stick with us for the ride from here on in. You can follow online at hashtag Voctech and at podcast edtech. A big shout out to UFI Charitable Trust and UFI Ventures who made this new series possible. Go and check out their fine work in developing innovative vocational technology to support workplace skills development at ufi.co.uk. And thank you also to all of the listeners who filled out our survey as we developed the concept for this new series. You're amazing. Right, let's jump straight into episode one. To kick off our new series, I'm in conversation with Richard Price, Learning Technologies Advisor at NHS Health Education England. We record right in the middle of a weather warning in the UK where we had one month's rain in just one day. So there are a few knocks and bumps for atmospherics. We talk about preparing the healthcare workforce to deliver the digital future as set out in the Topple Review how to communicate training objectives across an enormous and diverse workforce and how to assess new technologies and their impact on learning. Lots of transferable lessons for anyone utilising or deploying digital skills. I hope you enjoy this first episode of our new series and if you'd like to be included in the next episode in our listener feature, just say hello, who you are and what you do in our 90-second voicemail platform at speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. All references from this week's conversation are also available at our website. Okay, here we go. I'm absolutely delighted to be on the line with Richard Price, Learning Technologies Advisor for Health Education England. So welcome, Richard. Hi, Sophie. Great to be here. Uh, as a disclaimer to our listeners, the UK is, as we record, in the middle of a um, severe weather warning. So if you hear lots of raining in the background, then that's why. And yeah, it's just part of the ambience of this recording. So enjoy that. So before we start, a quick introduction. The mission of Health Education England is to support the delivery of excellent healthcare and health improvement to the patients and public of England 
by ensuring that the workforce of today and tomorrow has the right numbers, skills, values and behaviours at the right time and in the right place. And Richard's team is an exciting sort of subsect of Health Education England, looking at all the future-facing technologies which may help support this mission. So an R&D lab of sorts, if you will. Richard has a degree in marine biology from the University of Hull and a master's in information technology from the University of Liverpool. And he is also a career bridge mentor to students from the University of Hull. Richard's biography reads something like this. I've crammed a lot into my career. That's my approach to making a difference in the world. From working to improving the delivery of education, training and digital literacies with health and care organisations in the UK, advising governments in Thailand, Myanmar and Southeast Asia with their education provision, to building learning with Learn Appeal in Kenya. I love the way technology, education and training can transform lives. And a fun story about how we set up this recording. So when I was launching the BokTech podcast, I knew I wanted an L&D professional to come on as a guest from the NHS as one of the largest employers on planet Earth. And with this in mind, I was delighted at the Learning Technology Summer Forum that Richard was from the NHS and that we connected. And not only that, but he also told me that he's a listener to the EdTech podcast. So with all that in mind, super excited to start our recording and welcome again, Richard. Hi there, Sophie. Nice to be here. Um, so Richard, before we begin, how did you end up in your current role? Well, it's a slightly convoluted story, but and probably not a traditional one either. But I started off life, my undergraduate degree, as you mentioned, was in marine biology. So I was actually researching marine snails, measuring their anatomy uh, to look at how changes in um, the environment can change the sex of these marine snails. So it was really sort of lab-based work, sat in a lab all day, and I realised at that point, staring down a microscope for the rest of my life was not going to be the career choice for me. It was yeah. going to have something, um, something involving lots of people, getting really excited about that. So I tried lots of different things. I tried working as an estate agent for a bit, which I loved the ability to look around people's houses and being nosy but actually that really wasn't the sales bit just didn't appeal to me at all and I wanted to do something that made a difference in the world I guess so working for healthcare I really feel like we're making a difference and improving people's lives and making things better for the people that we serve across the UK and, and indeed the world so getting into learning technology as a result of that was something that I felt like I had some experience in and some background in that I could actually start to fulfill that mission of sort of helping people. It's fantastic and yeah I guess after a while sort of snails have a limited conversational ability should we say. Well this is it staring down <laughs> on the scope is it's quite lonely work at times. Yeah yeah so if I understand correctly your R&D team sits within the technology and enhanced learning program at Health England and it says here the vision for that program is that patients and public in England benefit from a health and care workforce educated using the most effective evidence-informed technology and techniques. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about some of the technologies that you've been assessing within this capacity. Absolutely. So as a team, I think we're really privileged to work with every part of the NHS. Um, so we get to work all the way from people working in support services like porters, working in hotel services, all the way up to senior consultants, nurses, doctors, everybody, every part of the NHS. So it's a real privilege to be involved with this um, and to actually see how some of the technologies that we're using actually start to have an impact on their, their lives and how they learn in the workplace. So some of the technologies we've been sort of experimenting with, we, we do a lot of stuff with e-learning. 
Um, so that's the sort of more traditional delivery method. But we're also sort of exploring the more innovative techniques. So we're doing a lot of stuff with virtual reality at the moment, for example. So there's a professional group called Allied Health Professionals, which are the paramedics, the podiatrists, the, those kind of careers. They're, they're sort of under-resourced and undervalued sometimes in the NHS. So we wanted to draw attention to the, the amazing work that those colleagues do, mm. creating these 360 videos. So we worked with Tor Bay Hospital, where we have a virtual reality lab that we, we fund down there. And we worked with the team there, Nick Perez and the team down there, to create these incredible videos that explore what it's like really to be one of these professions, getting right into the detail. So they're not perhaps for somebody that's got a, a you have to have quite a strong stomach to watch some of these videos. <laughs> But uh, they're really quite incredible. So um, really immersive. So there's that kind of thing. But we're also looking a lot at sort of personalised learning as well. Yeah. Working with a lot of companies out there in the private sector at the moment to look at how artificial intelligence can drive that personalisation and improve the way that we don't just deliver one size fits all training anymore. We start to deliver training that meets the needs of the individual much more. So there's a lot of work going on in that as well. We also do a lot of work with sort of simulations. So that's things like mannequins. One you're probably familiar with is Rissosiani. So everybody's done CPR training on Rissosiani. But actually, they're much more confident. Um, they can be a lot more sort of complicated than that and sophisticated than that. And um, they have sensors in them. You can you can program the mannequins to do different things. So we're doing a lot of work in exploring that area as well, researching what, what kind of technologies and things can support that as well. That's fascinating. And well, as an aside, when I was coming towards the end of school starting university I worked as a porter in my local hospital in the Isle of Wight yes it's I mean if you want to ever experience you know all the different stories going on in a hospital it's a great way to do it I suppose I recommend it to anyone you get to see the best in humanity and the worst in humanity. oh yeah 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 it was interesting what you said about AI and adaptive learning because it got me thinking about the the kind of variety of languages spoken both among the staff but also among patients and you know when that can become a barrier to accessing healthcare and I just wondered if you'd looked at AI in relation to sort of languages and and overcoming those language barriers ever. So absolutely I mean language is a, a big challenge and typically we deliver our content in in English because that's the the language that the majority of our workforce speak but we appreciate that Perhaps in patients' cases, it's not always the, their sort of first language. So sometimes it's about not just making the content accessible from a technical point of view, but also looking at the language you use and making sure that it's in a, in a sort of simple enough way that it makes sense. So there's no colloquialisms, those kind of things. Uh, but equally, we also look at how um, the technology might be able to drive that. So we, we've been running some pilots with a company that do some artificial intelligence work and looking at sort of automatic transcription of videos and translation of videos. So there's absolutely some, some work going on in that space around, around that work. But I think it's important to note that particularly for an international audience, sometimes it isn't just about the, the translation of the materials, it's also about the translation of images and things as well. So I don't know, why middle-aged man uh, on a photo might not appeal to an audience outside of the UK for example because they're looking for sort of localization I suppose yeah. of those those images and those that content yeah yeah and then do you also look at technology in relation to diagnosis within your remit so that's not something we would directly do so there's an amazing report that came out earlier this year called the Topol Review. So we worked with this incredible clinician from the United States called Professor Eric Topol. 
Um, he's the most charismatic man you will ever meet. <laughs> Incredible guy, but he's a he's a cardiac surgeon and came up with this report commissioned by the Secretary of State that looked at the whole breadth of healthcare and how that's going to change over the next five years, 10 years, 15 years and beyond. So looking at the tools that are out there now, but also looking at the tools and technologies that are out there. So artificial intelligence clearly has a, a key role to play in that, but also sort of medical devices and things like that. So that you can get these incredible ultrasound scanners that will plug into your phone and they cost yeah. about $400 now. So they're really sort of almost consumer level prices. And uh, as Eric puts it, you can do a full body selfie. So you can literally take a, an ultrasound of every part of your body um, and, and show that to your clinician. So that that's sort of how it's going to change the, the way that we deliver healthcare. So it moves from much more, so at the moment it's very much clinician led, but it's going to become much more sort of patient led. I guess. Um, so from a from a technology point of view, that's going to change things. But from a delivery point of view, but we're obviously going to have to change the way that we train the workforce as a result of that. So that means looking at people's digital capabilities and whether they're ready to, to accept those challenges around that and things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely fascinating because I did some work in a previous life. I launched the Mobile Healthcare Industry Summit in 2009. And so this is when the Vodafone CEO was sort of looking at how we might be able to use some of our mobile phone technology at the time to, you know, if it could assist the healthcare sector in that way. And and then again, uh, some work around sort of patient safety. And I think Eric Topple at the time was sort of doing some of the leading work around patient safety, if I'm correct. And I think what he was, you know, really putting forward there was about making everyone far more comfortable with being open and transparent about when things go wrong and learning from them and advancing as a profession. And I just wondered, because I haven't had a a chance to read that report that came out in February, but whether that same message came through and, and, you know, as a, and the implications for that in terms of training as well. Yeah, I think it did. I think the the key message throughout the whole report was actually, this is, the technology is great but it needs to enhance the way that we deliver care. And actually, the only way you're going to do that is to have a, a suitably trained workforce. We can't leave the workforce behind. So we've got amazing professionals doing um, things within the NHS, but actually how we, we need to make sure that when new technologies do come out, we don't leave people behind. We, we make sure that that workforce of the future is, of today is ready for that workforce of the future and that workplace of the future. So a lot of the work we're doing now is exploring how when these new technologies come on, how do we ensure that that workforce is digitally capable, is digitally literate? But I hesitate a little bit to use the word literacy because I think sometimes it has sort of negative messages around sort of reading, writing, that kind of thing. What we're talking about is making sure that everybody just is, is comfortable using the technology and making sure that they they become more adept at adapting to the available technology that when it comes out. There's a lovely example. We, we went to a GP practice in Kent. They typically have a surge of calls and a surge of visits from um, patients when there's a headline in the newspapers of a particular condition. That's amazing. That's it's, Isn't that amazing? Because it's the same in supermarkets, isn't it, in terms of weather and then, you know, putting more brollies out and that kind of thing. Absolutely. But this, this GP surgery, rather than sort of, uh, sort of criticising patients when they come in with printouts from Google with all of the symptoms that they think they have, I'm actually working with them. They're sort of using the t- technology that's out there, sitting with them in front of the computer and going, well, 
this is the reasons why it's not this and you don't need to worry and reassuring them that way. So so actually technology doesn't necessarily deliver the training, uh, uh, deliver the training or deliver the care in those instances, but it is supporting that individual, that patient to improve their their sort of lifestyle and things as a result of that. Well, that's really interesting because as I understand your work is quite... I was reading the the blog from your team and it seems to follow a sort of agile methodology, but also quite strongly focus on, you know, the end user and making sure that you're involving them as you develop any of your services or your sort of R&D work. So for people listening in, do you have any kind of advice on, you know, how to go about that, how to bring people, you know, into that process? It can be quite tricky in healthcare because everybody's very time poor and very stretched. So actually getting people to commit to giving us their time freely to to be involved with this can be tricky. But actually, I think a lot of the time it's appealing to people's willingness and saying, actually, this is good. This is this is how it's going to improve your the way that you can can work in a healthcare environment. So that's the kind of messages we tend to typically give to recruit people to help them to get them involved with our work and, and show that enthusiasm that excitement that we have for, our, for what we're doing as well yeah yeah and from a sort of technical point of view when when it gets to the point of you know you maybe you've assessed some of these technologies you realize where there's going to be a positive impact and then it goes more into okay let's roll this out if i understand correctly the nhs is the world's eighth largest employer i'm sure these things go up and down but and i'm sure this isn't just you responsible for doing this across everything but how do you go about rolling out training to such a large and multi-generational workforce so as we talked about you know some people are you know have tons of experience perhaps you know are later coming to some of the digital tools and then you know there's varied capabilities so how do you roll that out in such an enormous organization so, so I guess there's, there's two challenges there. There's one that is about appealing to a mass audience. Uh, I've got multiple sort of varying levels of ability. And then there's also the challenge of how we, we, we scale some of these things up. So a lot of the technologies that are out there, because we are so large, and I think it varies quite dramatically how, how big an employer we are. Currently, we're at the eighth. I think we were sort of third last year. It just varies quite oh, a lot. I think mine's, mine was global, so I think it's third in the UK, yeah. yeah. It's usually, I don't know, um, McDonald's and Walmart are <laughs> yeah. usually above us. But yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a huge and very complex. I, w- I won't say it's a production line from uh, McDonald's into <laughs> the NHS. That would be naughty. Well, absolutely. I mean, cardiac surgery is very different <laughs> to delivering a cheeseburger, I guess. But yeah, these are these are sort of challenges, I guess, around the sort of scalability of all of these things. So the NHS structure is devolved into a number of sort of units called NHS trusts. Uh, there are about 600 across the UK. So ultimately, at a local level, it's up to whether an individual organisation decides to go with our recommendation based on the research that we've done. But we do also procure things at a national level as well. So we have a platform called eLearning for Healthcare, for example, which probably one of the largest learning management systems in the world, I guess. And um, we've got about a million registered users on there that can access free content uh, for everybody working in the NHS. So there's resources on there all ranging all the way from sort of compliance training statutory mandatory which I'm sure we're all familiar with all the way through to sort of very niche things around tracheostomy care or sort of cancer care those kind of things so that's available um, at a national level and that's procured at a national level so some of that material goes on to to those national platforms mm-hmm. 
But like I say, to address the other part of the question around sort of the varying capabilities, I think this is one of the things we discovered. So one of the things we, we've been working on for probably the last two years now is looking at what sort of digital capabilities the workforce now has and what they're going to need in the future. It's not a simple case of rolling out training to that's one size fits all. That's where personalization comes in, I guess. But what we're finding is typically there isn't a sort of typical user, an average user. People have strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others. So if you think about a child, a 10 year old will have great technical ability. They'll be able to use an Apple iPhone or a Samsung smart Galaxy phone far better than you or I could. But they probably don't know how to use that safely and securely. So there are different capabilities there. Whereas you, you or I, Sophie, would have much better technical um, safety and security abilities to be able to distinguish between a sort of personal identity mm. and a, a professional identity. And these are skills that we're, we're having to upskill. So it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. So we've developed what we're calling a digital capability framework, um, which is available on our website, um, and tells you and, and has six domains of capability that we would expect somebody to have. So there's sort of research in there. There's the ability to do blogging, communication, and things like that. Technical skills that are relevant now, but hopefully will be relevant into the future as well as we enter this sort of new age of medicine where we've got personalised medicine, we've got genomic medicine, where all these incredible sort of advances in, in technology where we're working towards the um, uh, sort of, I don't know, Star Trek style tricorder that you can point <laughs> it, it tells you what's wrong with them. This sounds like science fiction, but this stuff's coming. So we need to sort yeah, of yeah. So are ready for that, that kind of thing. There's a great guy I follow on Twitter, and I'm reading his book at the moment called Bercy Mesco. He calls himself a medical futurist. He's a, a doctor from, from Poland, from memory, and he um, has these sort of incredible insights into what new medical devices are coming. And we, we're obviously following people like him to see where the the changes are going to need to take place within the healthcare workforce as well. Absolutely, yeah. I remember I was in a digital healthcare LinkedIn group, which has grown tremendously since it started. But I remember even back in, you know, late, well, 2009, early sort of 2010. And even then, the FDA in the States was, you know, suddenly the smartphone became something that was regulated under sort of the, you know, the healthcare sector because of its ability to act as a medical device. So some really interesting kind of fallout implications as well as all these things develop. Absolutely. And here in the UK, we have the National Institute of Clinical Excellence who perform a similar role to the FDA. They similarly consider certain things on smartphones to be medical devices. So we need to be careful with that. But I don't think we can underestimate how important actually things like smartphones and um, all of these sort of personal devices are to learners as well. So increasingly we're finding, and we're working towards maturity uh, to do another benchmark at the moment actually around this, but we're, we're increasingly finding that there's a lot of use of personal devices um, to support education and training. But I should stress not in the sort of clinical context. So anything in a clinical environment would have to be much more regulated than that. But it's a, it's a great tool that allows sort of time poor clinicians to be able to think about paramedics, be able to access learning on the go in, the, in an ambulance while they're on standby waiting in a lay-by waiting for yeah. uh, an to come in. I worked for an ambulance service for a number of years and that was one of the things that we were really keen on, how we made that that learning accessible to that, that sort of audience that sat at, potentially with a little bit of time on their hands but not 
not enough to be able to return to station and, mm. and actually do any formal learning, but be able to access bite-sized videos, that kind of stuff. So looking at the technology that's out there to support that as well. How do you go about actually uh, assessing the impact of these technologies and deciding whether to progress them or if they're kind of, uh, you know, they're too early stage to, to kind of move forward? We have a sort of number of methods, I suppose. We have an academic partner that we work with that gives some academic rigour to our work. So we don't just go and buy a, a nice gadget and try it. We do actually try and do a, a proper study as to the impact of that, that technology. So I suppose with virtual reality in particular, there's, a, there's usually a wow factor associated with that, which is great because it gets people engaged with learning, gets them excited about learning. But actually, that isn't necessarily the outcome that we want to achieve just because someone's excited about the technology doesn't mean that it's going to have the same impact as say a classroom course for example so for example with fire safety training it's, it's a topic everybody has to do so I'm picking on that as perhaps a, a an example of, of something that we might want to do if we were to deliver fire safety training via virtual reality it would have the wow impact but would it have the same impact in terms of learning outcomes and that's that's something we would have to do so we would take some data from um, the current delivery method which might be e-learning or classroom chaining and we would compare that to a similar data set from from learners based on their sort of knowledge retention so we would have to we would make sure there's some academic rigor to that and make sure that there is actually some value to implement technology rather than just implementing technology for the sake of technology i think as a i suppose there's, there's two ways of looking at this i think sometimes People say, well, it should be all about the education. Yes, of course, it should all be about the education. But actually, I think sometimes the technology drives the, the education path as well. So when a new technology comes out, I don't think it should be dismissed as sort of technology. And that, that's really our role, I suppose, to look at the, what those new technology, those emerging technologies are and, and see whether there is an impact of those technologies. Absolutely. I think we can we can be dismissive on both sides, can't we? You know, you, you can get so obsessed with being in a camp and sort of you know being a purist and actually I think it's about whether you can use that tool within the context that you work absolutely yeah I sort of mentioned in your biography that you also work on an e-learning project called learn appeal I just wondered I know it's slightly outside of your kind of day-to-day role but whether you might be able to tell us a little bit about that so yeah when I when I first started this conversation with you I, I sort of said that I didn't I wanted a job where I was actually trying to make a difference in the world and I think that's kind of driving everything that I do I suppose as well um, and Learn Appeal is an amazing charity that has been set up from the e-learning community across the UK and it's the it's called the e-learning industry charity so the lady that runs it Leslie Price who's no relation of mine but she is an incredible lady that has set up this charity and is trying to turn internet in a box basically and make that available to people all over the world so when we're talking about internet in a box what we've got is a about the size of a child lunch box within that you've got a wireless router a battery pack and on there is a learning management system that broadcasts people within a sort of 200 meter radius Um, and that little learning management system sits on little micro sd card and on there is a load of content as well that have been created but I, sh- I should stress these are really poor communities that we're working with so we're talking about ke- communities in Kenya for example that have very little or no access to um, the internet and are I suppose information poor as a result of that they, they're information poor they, they don't have the same, same access to the knowledge that perhaps those of us in the west take for granted we're trying to sort of address that balance a little bit by giving 
access to this internet in a box and giving access to the tools, the technologies that we all we all have access to. So part of that is developing e-learning content that's really going to help those communities. So I got involved with Learn Appeal about two or three years ago now, supporting them with the work that they're, they're doing uh, by writing content for them. Um, and it's not an area where I have any particular knowledge. So I was acting purely as a sort of instructional designer in these cases, but we were developing content around water management, for example, and rainwater collection. So these are fairly sort of basic fundamental skills that people in, in, in Kenya, in this, this community in Kenya really needed. So we were developing content to support them with that. And I actually ended up having to, because there's so little information online about this, and so little imagery and things available, I actually ended up building a, a rainwater collector in my back garden that I took photos of to include in the learning. So it was very practical, very hands-on development. Hands on, yeah. Something that genuinely, I think we've, we've really helped a lot of people with that um, and we're going to save lives and, and help people. And if people want to find out more about that side of things as well, where, how can they find out more? So we've got a cracking website at learnappeal.com. And you can access all of the material on there, including a little video that shows Eric Kamora, who is one of the people on the ground in Kenya and has access to all of the, the learning materials and, and talking about his sort of real experience of using that on the ground. Final question is, if there are other L&D professionals listening in, what would be your message to them with regards to the role of tech? So I think technology has the power to bridge a lot of gaps between those that perhaps have accessibility needs and things. And I think that's one of the incredible things about the World Wide Web and the Internet. That Actually, we've gone from if you think about putting accessibility into a physical building, you have to build ramps and things for people that have accessibility needs. With the Internet, you don't have those kind of barriers if you build stuff correctly then you can really bridge those gaps. And I think that's an incredible thing about learning technology as well, that if we do it right, we can make learning available to everybody, regardless of wealth, regardless of ability. And my message, I guess, would be to keep pursuing that Mm. and ensure that that's always at the heart of everything that you do. Technology really is a great enabler. And I think this is a fantastic opportunity we have with technology and education. And just finally, what, what's been your, some of your favourite episodes of the EdTech podcast? <laughs> uh, I know you're putting me on the spot now. Just check this thing. I, I listened to one a couple of weeks ago. I really like the idea of the European EdTech Network, and I've joined as well. Um, so that was a really, really great podcast. I was also listening to one from a few weeks ago where you were interviewing people from the Philippines, from Canada. Um, just hearing about the sort of different international perspectives on education and training and not just in a workplace context as well I think that's really important that actually we learn from all of the different sectors out there um, so that we, we find out what's going on in across the, the spectrum. Wonderful well thank you so much for your time today and yeah looking forward to publishing this and uh, getting out your interview. Thanks Sophie. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening in and I do hope you enjoyed and found some gems of inspiration to take away with you. If you listen to this before the 18th of September, you can also meet Richard in person at our VocTech podcast launch. 
if you happen to be in the city of London. The link's in our show notes at theedtechpodcast.com. Next week, we've got Steve Wheeler, author of Digital Learning in Organisations, talking about why everyone in an organisation needs to be informed and how digital can help. If you're a fan of Marmalade, make sure you listen in. That's all for now. Thanks for subscribing and listening. Bye-bye.